Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all. Welcome to a live special of the Voice of Islam Science Hour, broadcasting from Hadika Dul Madi, Oakland Farm, Alton, Hampshire. My name is Adil Badra, I'm your host for the next hour or so. We are at the 56th annual convention of the MDM Muslim Association UK, and I'm delighted today to be joined by an esteemed panel for this Voice of Islam Science, Science Hour special. With me today, I have Dr. David Malik, who is a teacher and director of science at a West London school. Assalamualaikum. And Dr. Azad Ashraf, who is a neuroscientist, medical writer, and published author. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. It's great to have you both with us today. Um, and it's always a great honor and blessing to attend this annual event which like most things has been affected by the covid pandemic for me personally it's the first time i've been back here for three years so let me start by just asking you both you know what uh, what makes this gathering special for you personally um so um I think uh, uh, just just thinking about as I came in to Jalsagar and just starting my duties a few days earlier, um, and just just first of all just meeting uh, with friends who I hadn't seen for a long time, um, and, and then friends who uh, who there's a link and a, a brotherhood link between us, um, and that link really is down to Khilafat and our love of Khilafat uh, because. Um, when when we go out into the world, um, and then when we spend our busy lives mm-hmm. working with our careers, etc., we don't find that we don't find that common that the common sense of value, the common sense of vision between us, um, and and it's sometimes you, you kind of begin to almost forget you get lost in the world. Mm-hmm. As soon as you come onto the Jalsa site, you see uh, your friends um, and you see strangers who are not really strangers, who say salam to you. And there's a lot of things unsaid. There's a connection between us. Um, and that connection is essentially love of Khilafat, love of Allah, and coming together. And I think, for me, is just being able to be part of that again. Um, that, that, you know, that, that's the biggest thing for me when I come to Jalsa. So I guess for me, uh, I think just praying behind uh, that the caliph is, is a big thing. I, I think it's been a year since I last uh, saw the caliph. Um, and I think it's just that uh, sometimes when we are um, in the materialistic world, for example, we're doing normal things, the worldly um, the, uh, things, for example, our profession, uh, we get really busy. Uh, and the problem is spirituality sort of, uh, you know, you lose the spiritual sense sometimes. But this event is like uh, you, you get to experience that uh, in unison with other people it's like a brotherhood so what, what it's, it's actually easier to do these uh, sort of you know spiritual uh, or good deeds in a way uh, when you're doing it with other people so it's, it's always said that you should vie with one another in good deeds and I think this verse from the Holy Quran really you know sets the tone for me for Jalsa so I think that's the special part for me I think that's what makes Jalsa unique it's the good deeds it's the fact that this is a gathering it's not a gathering for worldly reasons it's not a sports event it's not a music event it's an event where you're here to you know learn about being doing good things about morality and if you think about you know the volatility of the times we're living in today you know the world unfortunately it seems to be on the brink of all out war you know if you look at the politics of the age you know they talk about this being the post truth era i mean that's an incredible thing isn't it an era where the truth no longer matters. 
you know, where politicians and prominent people in the media simply reject facts um, because, you know, for their own personal agenda or they think that, you know, you know, what they're offering is more important than the truth. So, you know, and when I would argue that the truth and studying facts is the backbone of human civilization, and in essence, that's what all, you know, religious dispensations have, have you know, that's their message. So I think in this time and age, more than ever, these gatherings are unique. It's a unique gathering. It's a gathering where we're talking about righteousness, morality, and the world certainly needs needs, uh, needs that. And, you know, it's led by, you know, the spiritual head, head of our community, Hazrat Mirza Musur Ahmed. We, we all know about his message that he's taken to leaders throughout the world. I think we'll come on to that in a second. So, yeah, um, if, if I may, Jack, yeah. I think so. Uh, well, when I'm doing my duty uh, with the fire and safety team, and so we're working with certain externals as well. Yeah. So they see that as well. So when when they come in, there is this amazing system which is running Jalsa. Yeah. And uh, where pretty much everyone's working without any pay. Yes. It's completely voluntary. What is this mysterious force which is making this enormous event actually run? And alhamdulillah, as we can see uh, this year, run really, really well. Things are alhamdulillah running very, very smoothly. All the systems are there and people are enjoying the jalsa. And actually people from outside when they come in, they, they see that, uh, yeah. that divine system running as well. Yeah. And I think if I also may add, I think I was also speaking to the externals about this and I was telling them this is this is literally like a spiritual bath mm. and, you know, it sort of purifies you and that purification can be seen in the air as well, you know, uh, not just symbolically, you can actually feel it as well. Um, and I think that's really special. The other thing I uh, wanted to point out also uh, in terms of, um, you know, the purpose of life is that w- with the events that are taking place now, wars and so many other things happening, you sort of lose a sense of purpose of life and you get really depressed and I think for me this event actually sort of uh, you know if that's not a word but sort of undepressed me you know mm. you know taking taking things back and I've I've I'm feeling so relaxed now as if there is no you know no trouble in the world but I think this event this is what it adds to and it sort of reignites the purpose you know what is the purpose of life so yeah yeah agreed well let's let's move on to you know our panel discussion so let's start with uh, a discussion of belief according to the holy quran religion is often considered polar opposite to scientific thought you know people would argue on one hand you've got science which is an evidence-based belief system inobservable facts whereas religion is thought of as a subjective belief in something you know perhaps supernatural not constrained by the laws of nature but you know, I think we would all probably agree that's a false narrative, a myth. Islam makes it clear that you know a belief in one God, His books, and His prophets is also evidence-based, requiring the use of you know rational knowledge and logic. And there's many verses of the Holy Quran that allude to this. And I'll just you know one or two examples. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful. This is chapter ten and where it says in the Holy Quran, no soul can believe except by the permission of Allah. And he makes his wrath descend on those who would not use their re- reason. And similarly, the practice of following religion simply because of what your parents have followed, you know, your birthright, your inheritance, is simply following a religion because that's what your tribe does. This is also rejected in many places in the Holy Quran. This is chapter 2. And when it is said to them, that's the disbelievers, follow that which Allah has sent down. 
They say, no, we will follow that wherein we found our fathers. What, even if their fathers had no sense at all and no guidance? So, the, and, that, and that's the sad reality of religion today. Most people simply follow it because that's what their parents did. You know, that's what their, you know, their relatives do. It's a birthright. They follow it because they think they have to. That's, you know, your, you know this, is your cult, this is your background. You just got to do it whether you believe in it or not. Um, and it's just tribalism, isn't it? That's why I look at it. It's tribalism. It's just like nationalism is tribalism. Just sticking like a pack of dogs would stick with their own, you know, group. It's that same instinct. So let, so let me put it to you. We've just heard, you know, a speech from by the leader of the Amdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Muslim Musrur Ahmed, who's our caliph. So, just in your own words, what do you think are the true merits of Khilafat? You know this spiritual successorship that we have in this community. Um, if I may link it to the discussion we were having before yeah. um, and how the world works today, and it's very explicit that how the leadership works often um, is uh, with regards to fulfilling certain very materialistic aims, mm. whether be it party loyalty or loyalty to some you know sort of a particular group as such um, and and this there's, there's there seems to be a lack of appeal to the greater good uh, and and true true morality there is no sense I think we, we live in a world where almost that's become taboo that we, we do this and we make this decision to say that we do this and we make this decision because this is the better thing to do this is a good thing to do um, and this is a result of us as a society often disconnecting from our relationship with God mm. and and our uh, Khalifa, the supreme head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, is that link, is that link towards divine leadership mm. um, because we, um, all Ahmadiyya Muslims around, around the world believe that he, he is the, div, the, the, the guide, uh, he's the divine guide um, uh, who, who, who's there to provide that moral leadership for uh, not just Ahmadi Muslims, not just Muslims, uh, for the world. Um, and and I, I don't see any, really, any other examples of that. Yeah, and I think uh, he's uh, the prime example to show the world what Islam really means. And in other words, he's really the voice of peace. And I, I've not seen any other leader who's actually portrayed Islam uh, in its true light, the way he's done, through, and he's reached the corners of the earth, and, and his message has been very effective. The other thing I have to say is that in terms of the true merits of Khilafat is that we have also benefited, like myself personally, I've benefited a lot. A lot of people say that education, you know, Muslims, Islam doesn't advocate education, you know, it doesn't really support education that much, but it's, it's a complete myth because um, the current caliph is... Um, is very passionate about his followers actually, um, you know, getting the highest education, which has actually led to me being where I am at the moment. I've actually also published a lot. Main reason being because the caliph wanted us to. He wants us to reach um, um, unprecedented heights, which no one has reached before. So I would say that for me personally, uh, that's the true merit. And this, you know, this all, we will all have personal examples as well. You know observing uh, the caliph over the years i remember when he was you know when he was uh, selected to be you know the leader um you know how it was obvious that he didn't want to be the leader you know he was very emotional 
Um, you know, when he left Pakistan to come here for you know for that process, he left on the premise that he was going to go back. Um, he had, you know, there was no thought in his mind that he's going to be this leader. He is no, had no desire, and that's a great sign of humbleness. And you saw that in the uh, in his early days. That humbleness extended to where he used to live. We all remember, you know, where he lived in Putney, in a very small flat. You know, this leader of you know millions of Muslims with huge resources available to him, living a very modest life, and that's a very, you know, that's a unique example, really. And then, you know, how he spent the last you know, a few decades going around the world, um, talking to leaders, going to parliaments, giving them the message that, you know, you of, of morality and righteousness, treat your people well, treat each other well. Otherwise, we are, you know, you will head in the direction that unfortunately I think we are slowly heading. So, you know, that personal uh, example is you know, you think it's simple, but actually, you, you're not finding it anywhere else. You're not finding it in the leaders everywhere. You know, in in any sphere. So I think that's really, you know, uh, you know, very powerful. If I may quickly add, also, is that if you could compare and contrast the the caliph with the worldly leaders, they are basically driven by greed. You know, like they they do say a lot of things that they never adhere to. Um, but if you look on the flip side here, his life has been drastically changed. He actually lived a very lavish life in Pakistan, uh, where he's come from, and now he has to give up all of that. And he's, con- you know, he's uh, constantly worried about his followers all around the world, what's happening as well, especially in areas where there's discrimination, etc. So I think it's not a very easy job for him, and he never wanted it. But Allah, you know, God chose chose him, so that's the. Uh, so I think um, before we move on to the next question, we'll, we will take a, a short break. And we will, when we come back, we'll talk about spirituality. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Hazar Umar was known for his great governance. He would often patrol the streets at night to ensure nobody was left suffering unduly. On one occasion, he was walking in the dark and he heard some children crying. Attracted by the sound, he went to the tent from which it came. Whenever he got to the tent, he saw a woman sitting before a fire. It appeared the woman was cooking something while her small children sat crying nearby. It was late for the children to have their meal. Umar, stepped up to the woman and inquired, What is in the pot on the fire? She explained that she had no food to give the children and had placed the pot full of water and stones on the fire in order to give them the impression that the food would be ready. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, was distressed to hear this. He hurried back to the state store, picked up a bag of flour, meat, cooking oil, and some dates, and rushed back to the tent. His servant begged him to let him carry the load, but he refused, saying, It is my responsibility you will not carry my burden on the day of judgment. Arriving at the tent, he delivered the provisions to the woman and told her to prepare the meal. 
In the meantime, the children, so exhausted, had fallen asleep. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, waited until the meal was fully prepared and the children were awakened and fed. The woman thanked him for his kindness and by way of expressing gratitude said, it would be far better if you were the Khalifa of the Muslims rather than that Umar, who is not aware of the condition of his people. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, said, well, mother, Umar may not be so bad after all. His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa discussing the economic, social, and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color, or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. The Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam Science Hour. My name is Adil Bajwa and I'm uh, with Dr. Naveed Malik and Dr. Azar Ashraf. So we are now going to go on uh, with our panel discussion and talk about spirituality. So let me put it to you both. What is an objective description of spirituality? Is, you know, is it again the sort of hocus-pocus supernatural thing that most people think it is or is there something is there more substance to that um so that's a very big question um and very big um topic to 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 cover um if if, if i may start and, and yeah. have have an attempt at it at the yeah. moment so um the holy quran teaches us that um the world that we sense the what we can see uh what we can hear and feel is not the only world. Um, there is a, a world beyond that world. Um, and, and it's essentially, a, a, that would be a sort of a good first answer to spirituality. There's a reality behind a kind of theater that we have in the world, and that's the theater of the materialistic physical reality. Now, um, um, this, there's a verse of the Holy Quran which is very enlightening uh, towards it and if I may translate mm. um, is that eyes cannot reach him but he reaches the eyes and he is the incomprehensible in these two very small verses and, and this is the enormous beauty and eloquence of the Holy Quran um, we are conveyed this whole idea about what God is and what what we call the spiritual world is um, so it's it's um, um, 
the, the first idea being um, so the word which is used in Arabic for incomprehensible is latif. Latif means something which is extremely refined. Mm. And uh, the idea is that so refined that our physical tools are too crude to reach that. Um, that God is the light behind the light. Um, and uh, w- with our physical, what we might call scientific tools, we, we, we will not be able to reach that. Or at least directly we can infer, but we cannot. But um, what the Holy Quran teaches us that Allah has given us other tools. And uh, th- th- those other tools, if I may use the word of the heart, um, uh, of the spirit, um, where we, we can use that instrument uh, to reach Allah. Um, and that the application of that instrument being prayer. And this is what the Holy Quran says that, um, and Allah speaks directly, not just to the Holy Prophet or any Prophet, directly to humanity, call upon me and I will answer. Um, um, so I, I, I see it, um, spirituality, to, to try to put it sort of in a rationalistic sense, um, is, is that part of ourselves which can detect this uh, phenomenal um, reality uh, which is the truth behind our physical world and ultimately which leads us to God. So, uh, Azar, before I come to you, clearly I think the soul is you know, intimately linked with spirituality. Now, the, the soul in Arabic, the nafs, you know, one um, meaning of that, it literally means that which is conscious. And obviously as a neuroscientist, you'll, you'll understand that better than me. But the Holy Quran also gives some insights into the soul in various places. And I'll give you one example. Chapter 39, verse 43. Allah takes away the souls of human beings at the time of their death and those who are not dead during their sleep. Um, and it's interesting to note that in Arabic, the word for sleep and death have the same root. So just as a neuroscientist, what 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 do you understand by you know the conscious mind and do you think that you know does that make logical sense that's also the soul so that's a very interesting question actually and uh, it actually requires a longer discussion of course but when you mentioned spirituality because i'm a neuroscientist the first thing came to my mind oh you you mean soul Hmm. because that's basically the, the the seat or the center from which the spirituality comes from or emanates from and then you then you talked about uh, consciousness so I guess the soul um, for me as a neuroscientist and what I've read about obviously science, science doesn't have answers to this it's a, a lot more complicated and a lot more involved question but what I would say is that there, there are numerous accounts of people having near-death experiences as well as people who've been in uh, under anesthesia. So when they are put to sleep during an operation, they have some interesting experiences. Of course, they're not validated. They're, a lot, they're very subjective. So I'm not going to focus too much on that. But I, what I'll say is that I, in the soul and consciousness, there seems to be a relationship between that. And interestingly enough, in neuroscience, this has been a hot topic because a lot of people have tried to work out what is the seat of consciousness in the brain. And interestingly that goes back to one of the prominent scientists called Francis Crick, who discovered, as viewers may know, they, he discovered the DNA model, the, the blueprint of life, uh, that is. So he started working on uh, consciousness, and, and he was really interested um, looking at what's the driver of consciousness, what is the seat of consciousness, where is it found? So he mentioned very quickly, very briefly, he basically found a structure in the brain which sits like towards the, the side of the brain, deep 
deep inside the brain. It's a really thin sheet of structure, but it lies in a prime position to receive connections from different areas of the brain. And he postulated that this probably was the center of consciousness. But it's not as simple as that. And a lot of people actually found that contentious. Uh, and it was a very controversial topic. But then other people came forward and said that actually soul may reside everywhere, you know, not just in the brain. And that's why you may see from pages of history that people often mention the heart. You know, they say, make a decision with your heart or with your brain, you know, things like that. But there is some sort of anecdotal evidence, which means that evidence, um, you know, it's not like substantiated evidence, but you know, here and there, people have come up with some theories where they suggest that actually, um, you know, soul may actually lie in the heart as well. And there is evidence to suggest that cognition, um, you know, may actually not just reside in the brain, but even the heart may take some of the decisions of the brain. And, you know, it makes sense, though. Obviously, it hasn't been verified yet, but it, slowly evidence is coming in. But there seems to be a connection everywhere. So in my opinion, it's not just about the nervous system, the nerves running through the body, communicating one another but there is something else as well which plays an important part and is actually at the heart of this conscious decisions that you make and that the answer would be the soul but obviously it's not so easily discovered but again I feel in my opinion as a neuroscientist I think soul uh, is or could be sort of the consciousness and the centers of that consciousness could be deep rooted within the brain and not just in the brain but also Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if, if I may jump in on that, Anthony, the, the concept of the soul within Islam um, is that it doesn't have this, the same kind of physical dimensionality. Um, and I think we have to be very careful. And, and similar to as, for example, the, um, the concept of God. Sometimes people um, uh, think of God as a localized, physical-like being, either up there or somewhere else. And we, it's very evident from um, the, the Holy Quran and sayings of the uh, Holy Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, um, that uh, you know, God is everywhere. Uh, and uh, ideas from, um, if, if you think about the physics um, if you bring a little bit of physics in there, ideas about space-time and, and so on, um, there, there's a lot of rigorous work on there to, to think about what locality is versus non-locality. So, for example, we think space and time has existed all the time, uh, often, and, and that's our kind of intuition. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the, the accepted model of um, how the universe began was um, from something a point like object so all of space time essentially didn't exist and, and log that, logically i mean god logically god can't be physical in the sense that if everything is created physical things were created there was a time before there were there was nothing physical so logically it wouldn't make sense that you'd be constrained by your own creation absolutely and, and i think it's really important for um people to understand that and and, and i would say um thanks to the the spiritual leadership the the khilafat which exists and the writings of our founder of this community promised messiah uh, peace be upon him hazrat mirza ghulam ahmed we we have a very i would say enlightened view of where that boundary lies between spirituality uh, and, and, and the physical world. So we do understand that actually they, they, there's, they, we can think about concepts which are not local and that tallies and it requires a greater discussion, mm -hmm. but it tallies with our ideas about space-time. 
uh, that there, there can be phenomena which um, possibly go beyond space-time. Um, and um, so, so I, th- I think this is important for us to understand. And if we could just go back to this yep. verse that we discussed when Allah says he takes the souls of human beings away at death but also during their sleep now this is my own personal interpretation what you know when you sleep one of the things you do is dream and when you're dreaming there is actually a disconnect between your consciousness and your physical body you know you could be dreaming of being in another country you could be dreaming of eating something you could be dreaming of you know suffering pain and that's you know it's a real feeling but obviously the physical body is is in your bed so there is that disconnect, and that same disconnect can, you know, is underlies revelation and visions. So, Azar, just c- coming back to you, um, just specifically on dreams, what is the sort of current un- understanding, or is there is there a theory of why human beings dream? So, I think in terms of dreaming, again, sleep is a is a big topic, yes. and it's not very easy to say, you know, objectively that this is it and this is that. And obviously, you know, that a lot of the a lot of the evidence that we have in science has actually come from also some psychotic patients as well who yeah. actually have delusions and they have hallucinations as well. So it's a, it's a bit of a diff- difficult topic to actually understand. And I don't think it's been researched as well at the moment in normal people who are not have really having any of those effects. But in those people who actually dream, it does seem that spirituality does play a big role, uh, a big part in this, your belief as well, you know, of, of what you believe in. And actually, it, it also depends on your, obviously, material experiences as well of the world and how you've done this. But I think in terms of this, there are there are quite a few theories by prominent psychologists in the past as well who actually thought that dreaming was a link or was a way to connect with the spirituality. So in a way, when your brain was sort of switched off, as we say, when you're sleeping, it's not really switched off, but it's not as active as it would be if you're awake, then it's sort of your soul might take over. And those are the sort of traces of evidence that we have going back. But obviously, they haven't sort of resurfaced again, only because not much funding has been put in place to study these topics so unfortunately i will disappoint you by saying that we don't really know but there are sort of pieces of evidence which may suggest yeah um if if i may jump in um yet again um so the the the, the, so it's a very complex phenomena and as azahar has pointed out uh, there are certain interesting insights into it so uh, one insight is from a biochemical point of view. So th- there is a little bit of cleanup which occurs. So certain cells, uh, brain cells are activated, which get rid of uh, certain toxic uh, chemicals which build up in the brain. But going one level up, so from molecular to perhaps a macro level up, so there is now insight coming in with regards to, first of all, there, what happens when we actually study patients who are going through what is called REM sleep. So it, it, there is a kind of replay which occurs of your day's uh, activities. And you might actually see some examples of that. So, for example, I, I don't know if you've had that. If, if you go to like Alton Towers or, or a theme park and you've been on roller coasters all day so, and then you come back home and I've had this and then I go to sleep and mm-hmm. I'm back there. It's like I'm transported back there and I'm replaying that experience. And the first part of REM sleep often is that there's a replay. But then something really interesting happens because then, and I I think intuitively we will know this, then the brain starts to play with these memories. So it starts to displace. So for example, you might be on the roller coaster, but you might actually be transported into your school. 
or into university. So that's the brain's way of actually exploring different possibilities from what we understand uh, of, of what's going on. And it's, it's, it's a way into creativity. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I may come back to and speak to the topic of uh, dreams and, and we talk about spirituality, because again, what insight we have within our community is that dreams are very important because dreams are also a form of communication. So um, communication from God. So um, within our community, uh, we have people who, who have dreams which actually turn out to be true, uh, which seem to have very objective, um, evidence-based signs in them which turn out to be true. And if we read Scripture, if we read the Holy Quran and even biblical scriptures and beyond, dreams are a way of God communicating um, as well. So, um, and for us to just interface those two ideas that there is an instrumentation which, is, which we, we have which is evolved in our brain, and that's being used for different ways. And one of the uses is uh, that that instrument is activated by revelation as a means of communication between that spiritual so, world. I mean, if you think of it us, logically, if you were designing a way of, you know, if God was to design a mechanism to communicate with His creations, then dreaming, you know, logically is what a what a mechanism, yeah. extraordinary mechanism. Um, and that will lead us on to our next question, um, which is, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? And we've touched on that already, dreams and, and various things, but we'll, we'll come back to that after another short break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, was known for his great governance. He would often patrol the streets at night to ensure nobody was left suffering unduly. On one occasion, he was walking in the dark and he heard some children crying. Attracted by the sound, he went to the tent from which it came. Whenever he got to the tent, he saw a woman sitting before a fire. It appeared the woman was cooking something while her small children sat crying nearby. It was late for the children to have their meal. Umar, Raya Lahu stepped up to the woman and inquired, what is in the pot on the fire? She explained that she had no food to give the children and had placed the pot full of water and stones on the fire in order to give them the impression that the food would be ready. Hazrat Umar, ready Allahu Anhu, was distressed to hear this. He hurried back to the state store, picked up a bag of flour, meat, cooking oil, and some dates, and rushed back to the tent. His servant begged him to let him carry the load, but he refused, saying, It is my responsibility you will not carry my burden on the day of judgment. Arriving at the tent, he delivered the provisions to the woman and told her to prepare the meal. In the meantime, the children, so exhausted, had fallen asleep. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, waited until the meal was fully prepared and the children were awakened and fed. 
The woman thanked him for his kindness, and by way of expressing gratitude, said, "It would be far better if you were the Khalifa of the Muslims, rather than that Umar, who is not aware of the condition of his people." Hazrat Umar, ready Allahu Anhu, said, "Well, mother, Umar why should one attend not be so the annual convention all. of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community?" The promised Messiah on whom be peace articulated the following aims and objectives for all those attending the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Number one, the visit will be solely for the sake of Allah, to listen to heavenly discourses and to participate in prayer to their utmost ability. Number two, the voicing of such truths and verities will be the occupation of this jalsa, which are important for the progress of belief, certainty. And enlightenment. Number three, friends that join this jamaat in each new year shall, by attending on the appointed dates, get to meet their brethren, and as a result, become friends. Number four, also anybody who passes away during the year, a prayer for their forgiveness shall be made at this convention. And number five, it shall be endeavored to spiritually unite all brethren and to remove disassociation, unfamiliarity. And hypocrisy from among them. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam Science Hour. My name is Adil Bajwa. I'm joined here today uh, by Dr. Navid Malik and Dr. Azar Ashraf. So we're now going to move on to the final section of the show to talk about what it actually means, evidently, objectively, to have a relationship with God. You know, we often talk. You know, you often hear that you need to develop a relationship with God. What does that actually, you know, in practice mean? Okay, if, if, if I may begin. Um, so, um, um, I, I, I think first and foremost, it's, it's, it's being aware of God. Mm. And, and, and by being aware of God, not just in sort of the, like the abstract sense that uh, there is a concept of God um, and it sounds logical or intellectually compelling although that those those could be important steps towards getting to a relationship with god um and if i may take a little bit of a detour and essentially that's what i think science does and as a community also that's that's what we believe that um the rational world um and science um the the laws of science and how they operate their complexity and their complete consistency in the universe uh, point towards a creator, uh, a creator who not only created but is active, uh, a conscious creator. Um, and uh, but but it can point towards it. But because that creator is um, so refined, um, is so uh, sort of beyond the universe that that cannot be reached through the crude tools of science. That can be reached through this. The, the, the refined tools of spirituality mm. um, so that can point uh, but cannot prove so if people sometimes people go down the path of we're going to prove God exists um, the, the, the science cannot prove God exists our hearts prove God exists our instruments of spirituality which have been given to us prove God exists and, and that's actually, a completely and that's yeah. actually you know that's that concept is taken up by the Holy Quran in many places. Mm -hmm. It does, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to note that 750 verses of the Holy Quran exhort believers to study it and reflect over nature, comparing to 250, which are legislative. 
and mm, what the, and time and again the message is that if you study nature if you study science these are signs of god they're signs but it, it never goes to the next step it never says that this is proof of god it's just you know for the one who wants to seek truth it gives them the answer that there should be something more but then those tools that you're talking about Naveed, those tools are obviously logically would be defined by god himself you know if, you know god is the yep. supreme being if, yep. if for instance he didn't want to be discovered all windows yep. would be closed yeah if he wanted to be discovered those avenues would be defined by god himself it yep. wouldn't be for a scientist to discover god yeah i mean that doesn't make any logical sense so yeah what what, what are those tools and to get the, to God, the, 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 well, we talked about the scientific tools, yeah. which which kind of guide your way. Yeah. But ultimately, if you uh, want to know God exists, it's it's prayer yes. and the response to prayer. Yeah. That's very very clear. And looking at other people and studying other people who've had similar experiences again to guide you. First and foremost, the prophets. Um, um, then the, the, the scripture itself. So revelation. Uh, so, for example, if you come on to the Holy Quran, there are verses in the Holy Quran which are phenomenal. Um, and to, to a person who is open-minded or open-hearted, uh, they would realize that how, how can these verses of the Holy Quran actually be written by a human being? There are verses which talk about scientific phenomena 1400 years ago unheard of. Um, as well, so th- there are a lot of avenues there. So uh, the revelation, revelation in scripture, and revelation of God, and a, and a very personal response. So I, I want to make it clear. I think I think again. Sometimes in religion, uh, people go down this path of kind of it. It feels sort of like a almost abstract concept of God. It feels right, and so on. In Islam, if you read the Holy Quran, as I was quoting earlier, it says. God will respond to you. And that communication can take place in different ways, but it is a direct response, which is irrefutable. And and that's the the struggle we have. Irrefutable to the individual. Absolutely. And obviously that, again, makes logical sense. Why should that discovery, it's for that individual, why should he be sharing that with the world? It's his efforts. And that again is designed. Yeah. And, and uh, if I may, it's also God is personal. It's, it's it, as as well. There is a very emotional and personal relationship based in love of God, which is very important. It's not just in an awareness. So it goes beyond that awareness in a personal relationship. And so, Zara, just just building on that. So we're talking about prayers. You know, we will all pray, and you know, an atheist will look and say, "Look, your prayer is completely futile." You know, what's going to happen is going to happen. There's this concept of scientific materialism that says that, you know, what's going to happen is based on the the the, the laws of nature and the the state that everything is in at the moment. So, how do you sort of rationally look at prayer and come up with you know a counter argument to say that prayers c- can mean something? Is there anything in science that would point that way? Uh, first, I'll go through one. I just want to mention one yeah. important point is that they, just like any other sort of field of study, it also like when you talk about religious studies, religious education, spirituality, it also has its phases firstly. So the first thing, this first stage is like, well, first we need to work out before we actually get to the stage of praying is like, is there enough evidence to suggest that there should be a God? Mm. And then it's the next stage is probably the prayer stage where we start to determine oh actually yes i i think you know like i now have this experience of god 
God Almighty through prayers or whatever through signs, and then you 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 get to a you know like uh, to the next stage where you your belief system becomes stronger. But I think in terms of talking about laws of nature, even if we go back to the um, the process of evolution, where people often use that to suggest or to say that there is you know God doesn't exist and everything just happens by chance or whatever but the most important thing is that Darwin's book on uh, on the origin of species actually wasn't meant to explain you know like mm-hmm. where we came from like th- which origin we came from which is where the atheists would take the argument and say oh God doesn't exist because his um his book was more about how creatures evolve from simple to complex organisms. And so that's an important distinction. The other thing that, to mention is that in science, I think it, it, atheists often say the law of nature um, is sort of independent and, you know, it, it will just take its due course. But the thing is, it, it's impossible, even if you look at it scientifically, like the, the design, the order, the structure, it just can't happen itself. You know, you just can't have random things coming in place and piecing together to make fine, you know, to make fine art, to make amazing sort of nature things and any sphere of life you look at be it like genes be it anything like your mutation rate is like less than one percent where genes sort of change and even despite that life takes a really intricate design i think it's just very difficult you know for there not you know you know for there not to be a creator for example i think it's just just now even if you look at things based on science and just common sense Atheists are not 100% sure either. Like they, they, they are always like saying that we're not sure whether God exists or not. So most of them are actually agnostic rather than being atheists outright, you know. So I think based on science and what you see, the manifestation, I, I think, you know, based on my experiences, science is a manifestation of, um, of God's attributes. Mm. So I think it's very difficult uh, even for a person who is, you know, biased or, or unbiased, either way, they always have that doubt in their mind that, oh, does God exist? Maybe he does. And even, you know, and the way they act sometimes, like especially when they're stressed out, they always say, oh, my God. You know, those are just indications that, you know, somewhere, root, you know, roots somewhere deep inside, they, they, they have this sort of, um, you know, opinion that maybe, maybe God does exist. So based on science and manifestations, etc., I think it's very difficult to not, you know, realize that there must be a creator or there might, there should be, or, you know, those things. If I I may also just bounce off what Zahar was talking about, actually, I think we live in a world today uh, which uh, distracts us from inner reflection. Um, And these, these tools and instruments which we have for establishing a relationship with the, with, with, with things which are greater than us. Uh, it, they they are being cut off. So we live in a society which where these faculties are not used, uh, from social media to let's go era back to television and so mm-hmm. on, and to this idea of our aim is to just have our careers and have a house and like it distracts us from inner reflection and actually looking for God. So those instruments, as a result, get blunted in a in a sense as well. They're there. So as I was talking about, they they're there. They somehow turn up. But I think our job as, um, you know, as, as within our community and beyond is to let people just ask a question. Go pray that, you know, and does I God think, exist? And just, you know, talking about that materialistic side of things, it's clear, just reflecting on, you know, the world, that there's no satisfaction in, you know, pursuing money yeah. or yeah. fame or, yeah. you know, power. You, we I can mean, see that in the world. Why do yeah. we have a billionaire? I mean, I don't understand. Once you've yeah. got one billion... And, and how does how, that benefit? How, why anyone? would you want another billion? Yeah. You know, what, what are you going to do with that money? Yeah. It's never going to be enough. Yeah. But that's because 
there's no satisfaction, yeah, is it? Absolutely. And you know, same with fame and power. And, and that's why absolutely. there's a great deal of unhappiness yeah, in these people. Absolutely. And look at what we've done to the planet. And we continue to do that with yeah. that materialistic philosophy where we deny that there is something above us. There is something, a greater reality behind us. Um, so, Well, I think we're coming to the end of our time. Firstly, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you, listeners, for listening. Um, please uh, go onto the website and look at our, our other episodes of Voice of Islam. And, you know, we would love to have you back. And, you know, if you want to be part of the show, please contact us. So from the Science Hour team, Jazakallah, peace be upon you. Enjoy the rest of the annual okay. convention. Assalamu